Welcome back to Last Ones at the Bar. My name is Daniel Lee. I'm here with Lavelle Jackson, co-host. And Will is out today. Will is out normally our quarterback, you know, our Aaron Rodgers, but I'm going to try to be my best uh, Chase Daniels, I guess. But we got a very special episode for you guys. Uh, but first of all, Lavelle, how you doing? How was your week? How was your weekend? Uh, my week's been good. You know, business as usual. Like others, I, I enjoy the heat. It's all right for me. You know, I, I, I didn't really like the cold, so heat was fine to me. So uh, everything is everything. Just enjoying this uh, weekend of boxing. You from Detroit and you like the heat? Uh, yes, because I, I grew up in, you know, getting a foot of snow and having to go to school in it. Like, they didn't shut the school down when it snowed. Okay. I learned how to drive in the snow. <laughs> Man, down here, we get a chance of snow. We out of there. We we at least getting a two-hour delay or something. But this is a very special episode because we have a special guest with us today who's going to be our guest and sort of a co-host. We have Coach Mustafa Black Castle out of Easy Work Boxing in Norfolk, Virginia. He's a trainer there. Mustafa, how are you feeling? How was your week? How are you doing? How was your weekend? I'm feeling good. Uh, I want to say first, thank you for having me on. I definitely appreciate you guys reaching out to me and wanting me on. Uh, my weekend was great because for the last few weekends, we've been on the road. We were at two weeks ago, we were at the USA Boxing Nationals. And uh, last weekend, I had to go out of state and celebrate um, my mother-in-law's birthday party. So it's been really good to relax. It felt really good to just relax and, and you know, get back home and take some time for for myself and my wife and stuff like that. So that's been really good. And uh, the weather hasn't been as bad as well. So it's been good. That's what's up, man. And I just want to thank you for being on, you know, like I actually would give you the credit for kind of to whatever extent I've been in the boxing circuit in this area. That's kind of because of you. You know what I mean? Because you intro me to Norfolk Boxing Center and then I got hooked up with Gaddafi from there. And then uh, that's how I got hooked in with easy work, you know. So whenever I do train, I do train out of there. You know what I mean? So I appreciate you for that, obviously. But. Also, you know, whenever we interacted, you know, I, I got good vibes from you. You seem like a solid dude. So we're both excited to have you on for sure. Thank you. Yes, sir. Well, before we get into this boxing talk, I want the people to learn about you. You know what I mean? So okay. how long have you been in the sport? You know, I know you're from, you're from Jersey originally, right? Yes, I'm originally from Newark, New Jersey. I started learning boxing back in 2009. So I had an uncle who did about 10 years in prison. and really. I kind of wanted to learn how to fight at first, but I started working out with my uncle and just regularly working out to get in shape, uh, push-ups, weightlifting, and little small stuff like that. Pretty much a lot of the stuff he probably was doing on the prison yard, I was doing that with him. And uh, I was dedicated, you know, you know, I dedicated myself to those little small workouts that we were doing. And he just asked me, he said, well, do you want to learn how to box? And of course, I was like, yeah, because I kind of originally kind of had that idea already, but I didn't know how easy it was. I didn't know how much work you had to put in. I didn't know virtually anything about it. So him asking me that question, you know, I was really excited and, and I wanted to uh, partake in it. So he started training me out of his garage. And again, I was dedicated. So I was coming every day and even I was more dedicated than my uncle was because I didn't I don't think he thought I was going to be as serious as I was. And because uh, my uncle had trained a few people here and there. And usually what happens with a lot of boxing coaches is you'll get some people who's 
interested for a short period of time and then their interest goes somewhere else, especially when you're dealing with a growing teenager. Um, maybe it's girls, maybe it's parties, maybe it's just time to themselves. Who knows, you know, especially when you're growing up in the inner cities, there's a lot of things that could distract you. So, you know, I was dedicated. So my uncle would be like, well, we're going to do this today. And he would go away, but I would keep, I would keep working on it. He would come back down like 30 minutes and see me still working on it. And he knew I was really serious. So through the time with him working in the garage, I was able to develop just because of the discipline that I had. So he was like, well, you've been doing it long enough. We need to see if you can really fight, you know? So he wanted to take me to a gym. So we went to a gym and uh, with some guys that had been boxing w way longer than me, but they were seeing some of the some of the technique I was displaying. They thought that I had been boxing longer. How long have you been boxing? How long have you been boxing and stuff like that? And I was like, how many? They would ask me questions like, how many fights do you have? You know, so I don't have any fights and stuff like that. And and uh, they were surprised. And then I started to spar these guys. And I uh, work out with these guys on a consistent basis by coming through the gym. Like my first sparring session, I did really good. Extremely tired. Extremely tired, though, because there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. There's, I played other sports before, and I used to get nervous before them. But the amount of emotions and the amount of anxiety that you experience in that time leading up to you getting into the ring is nothing like it. You know, and it's really something that you have to figure out how to deal with. Otherwise, you're going to have problems performing. So long story short, I was in the gym and stuff like that, and I continued to box. But I got to a point where I was going to graduate high school, and uh, I'd have had only had nine amateur fights. I was nine. I was seven and two. I had nine amateur fights. I fought in the New Jersey Silver Glove Tournament, and I had won the state, uh, New Jersey State Silver Glove Tournament. I thought I was the champ of the world. I didn't know that you had to go anywhere else to be, you know, to the regionals or to the nationals. I knew nothing about it. I sparred a bunch of people. I sparred a bunch of pros, sparred a bunch of top amateurs. Um, before Sometime before I went into the military, I actually was in high school with Shakur Stevenson and uh, trained a little bit at the gym with him and his granddad. Uh, that was a great experience. Gave me a lot of perspective on things. But I was in a position where I knew that I had to go to like I, I had I had to stop boxing because it wasn't making me any money. And because of the options that I had on hand, uh, they weren't that good. You know, it was, I was going to end up in a lot of trouble had I just stayed there not making any money. So I decided to join the military and I attempted to box when I was in the Navy. But they had went away from they. So at certain points in the tournaments, they were requiring the athletes not to wear headgear. But so the, the military kind of used that as an excuse to kind of like personnel safety. And uh, so they had kind of put all the boxing programs on hold and the Navy really never started theirs back up. So the whole time I was in the Navy, I was never able to join a boxing team or anything like that. But I would always hit the bag and stuff like that. I would stay active and people would ask me to help them out. I would help them out with other people that I ran into that uh, that boxed. I had one good experience from the Navy where when I was overseas, I actually boxed. I actually sparred with this guy who was in the, the Great Britain's Navy. And uh, me and him had did some sparring and stuff. That was a that was that was a great experience for me. Then uh, when I came back stateside, I wanted to get back into boxing. So I, that's how I got here in Norfolk, Virginia. 
I wanted to get back into boxing. Now, Shakur was down here for a time, but he ended up moving up to Alexandria. So I really didn't have that connection, right? We talked about connections earlier. And uh, I didn't have the connection to who would help, who could help me best. So I just started to go into gyms, but I didn't meet anybody that I liked and I thought would, you know, be a good trainer for me. Um, but I knew I wanted to continue to do something with the sport. So I, I, I became an official, but I also started to train the kids in my neighborhood. So I, crazy enough, I was just walking up to parents and asking them because I would see that I would see them and their kids weren't really doing much. I would ask them, are you interested in your kid learning how to box? And they would say, yes, crazy enough. But when you start training one, it's like the gates just open. I want to do what he, I can do what he do better than him. I want to do that. And from there, so I was able to train a handful of kids out of the parking lot and then out of my living room for a time. And even more crazier, their parents trusted me enough to take them out of state. So I was taking these kids back to where I knew because I didn't know much about the boxing community here. So I was taking them all the way back up to Jersey and Philly where I had new people. And we were sparring and stuff like that. And, and one day when I became an official, I started to receive these emails about local sparring here. So I went to this gym, uh, Universal Mixed Martial Arts, and I hope I'm saying it right, Coach Rob. It's a gym out in Portsmouth. But at the time, he had a gym in another location where – um, they were doing sparring and we went to the sparring event and I had seen some sharp kids, seen some sharp kids and some good coaches. And I was like, wow, I've been taking these kids all the way back home. And it's like great work, like right around the corner from us. So, you know, so I, I met this guy, Coach Randell, which was a, a huge influence on me coaching today because he was kind of my introduction into the boxing environment here, like the boxing community here. He, he brought me in, really nice guy and an awesome trainer. He had a nephew who was really good. Uh, they used to call him Golden Boy. And his nephew was sharp, man, um, really good. And uh, he coached with the Team Norfolk program. And then I started to hear all the stories about the boxers and the stuff they were producing out of the Team Norfolk. And I realized that was the program that Shakur was actually in when he was down here and, and all this type of stuff. So from there, it's just been kind of all she wrote. You know, I've been un- I was under Coach Randell Wing and the Team Norfolk Boxing Coaches Wings for, you know, about three or four years. Soaked up a ton of information from guys like Coach Dorsett and Coach Randell and, you know, and carried it into what I what I was doing and, and it made what I was doing a lot better. You know, I don't know if I'm, I know I'm talking a lot, so I don't know if you got any specific question that you want to ask. No, that's good. You answered a lot of them I was going to ask, but uh, what is it that you see in, in these kids and some of these fighters that make you say like, okay, this kid, this kid got something. He can, he can go somewhere. I mean, well, originally I started coaching just because I wanted kids to under, I wanted kids to see how fun boxing was. Like I have a huge passion for the sport. I wanted the kids to see, you can have fun doing this. Like I wanted the kids to have fun, really. But as I matured as a coach, I realized how important these jobs are as coaches. Like I I see the pattern and when the kids are actually at the gyms and when they're practicing every day, they tend to stay out of trouble. But when they stop coming to the gym, I've had a handful of guys that 
are now that are now incarcerated. And I'm talking about for serious time. I have one kid that was going to be tried as an adult for armed robbery. One kid that actually committed a murder. One kid that that's back and forth in and out of the juvenile system. So, you know, I realized how important that these jobs really are. And if I drop the ball as a leader, then, you know, I could be essentially allowing more of those incidents or those type of situations to happen. So that's really what my purpose is now, and the more so save the life and, and save them away from idle time. Gotcha. What's been your uh, proudest moment as a coach so far? Oh, man. So it just recently happened about a couple weeks ago. So, and I got choked up, almost cried, man, because a kid that I actually started, one of the kids that I started out of my living room, um, his dad was my mentor in the Navy, and he trusted me into coaching his son. And he got stationed in Japan. His family was supposed to go with him into, into Japan, but he didn't want to take his son out of boxing so much. And he trusted me with allowing his son to stay with me. So that kid actually just won a national championship. So that was, and his name is Jameer Germany. We call him Jaguar. So Jameer Jaguar Germany. He's from Norfolk, Norfolk, Virginia. You probably seen him a few times. Oh, yeah. But um, listen, that was the proudest moment. It felt the best. And I, I, I wasn't ever happier as a coach. You know, hopefully I have more moments like that. But that was definitely a moment right there for me. That was the best moment for me. Hey, congrats to, to you and him. You know, that's huge on both ends. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, man. Appreciate that. Now, we had some special fighters come out of Cell 5-7. You named a few of them already. What do you think it is about this area that kind of breeds those kind of fighters? So there's an equation that I use as a coach, and I say consistent quality experience. And I realized this from watching certain programs uh, certain boxing programs, but especially the Cubans. The reason why they perform so well on an international level and on, at the Olympic level is because they fight at that level the most out of any international boxing team. So the results are they have the most success. So what happened here is that you have a legacy of boxing here in, in the Richmond area and in the Norfolk area uh, more specifically, but 757 as a whole. You have a, a a real legacy going all the way back to the teams that had Sweet Pea on it. And there's stories that I hear about, you know, how Sweet Pea didn't start off as the best on the team and stuff like that. But, you know, obviously he stuck to it and he became a legend. He obviously became the best. But um, you also have great people, great coaches that have established great programs in this area, starting with Dan Campbell. So that's really where the Team Norfolk boxing program kind of had its most success. Like Coach Dan produced this team where they were winning a lot of national champions, ch championships and stuff like that. And then he and he was an Olympic coach himself. And then he turned over the program to Gloria Pete. Uh, she was an Olympic coach as well. And, and at the time she was head coach, they produced a bunch of national champions as well. And under that umbrella is where you get more of the people that we know today with the Keyshawn Davises, the Nick Sullivans, uh, the Kelvin Davis, Keon Davis. It's a it's a bunch of other guys as well that they had in that program. You know, Coach Dorsett himself came out of that program as well. And he had a, a, a bronze medal on it at the Worlds. 
you know, the, the international IEBA world championships. So there's a legacy there uh, in Norfolk. I can speak to more so because I, I was a part of that program uh, by team Norfolk. And uh, I kind of got the formula from them on really what it takes to be successful, you know, and that's the type of person that I am. Um, I don't, I'm not the smartest, you know, I don't know all the information, but I can process a lot of things and I can analyze a lot of things. So I see it and I try my best to emulate it. And once I hear the stories, like, so I take it upon myself to get on the phone with these people if I can, to have conversations with these people if I can, like the coach dance. And then when I get a chance to talk to Gloria Peak, I speak to them. Hey, what, what was it that you guys were doing? How do you guys do this? And, you know, they give the, they give the information and I try to apply it. You know, now since you're heavy in the amateur circuit, what fighters do you see now when you go to these tournaments? Do we need to be looking out for in the pros or just in general in the next, you know, five to 10 years? We got a lot of great programs out there. You know, I don't want it's a bunch of fighters. I don't want to I don't want to, you know, downplay anybody. But um, a lot of boxes that I study, I'm going to try to start from up north as high as possible. So I know. In Jersey, they have a kid named Emmanuel Chance. His all his brothers box. So usually when you got these families that box, these kids like they can fight. Right. Like right. when when you got the families in it, like when you got to spar your brothers and you at the gym with your brothers and work out with your brothers and sisters all the time, they usually can fight a lot. So you got this kid, uh, Emmanuel Chance that I watch. He's gonna be somebody that is definitely gonna ring bells on the pro circuit. Uh, the DC area. You have uh, guys like Jamal Harvey. What stands out to me about him the most is like his competitiveness. Because I see him in the ring with guys where he almost seems like he's not even supposed to be in the weight class with, as far as height, sometimes stature or whatever. And uh, he always finds a way to win, man. He's so tough. He's going to, you, if you're going to beat him, you're going to have to really fight him to beat him. You're going to have to really, you have to go a place that you're, that you're usually not willing to go. So he's really inspiring to watch because of his size and how he beats up bigger guys, for real. He's really inspiring to watch. Jamal Harvey, you got uh, a kid out of uh, D.C. as well. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm saying it wrong, but D I know they're from Maryland for sure because a lot of people don't like to say D.C. or whatever, but they're from Maryland for sure. Jamal Harvey and Jordan Roach. Jordan Roach, he's another one. His, 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 uh, his brother's Lamont Roach if you know about. So mm -hmm. his brother's Lamont Roach. So he's another one where his family's in it. And he, I love to watch him, the way how he lets his hands go. Uh, he's an awesome boxer. Um, I like to watch him. Oh, but I skipped uh, Philly. There's a kid named uh, Salim Ellis Bay. So this is a kid that I've seen since he, kind of since he started. We would go up to Philly and we would see him and just to see how well, how much he's grown. He's a, awesome boxer but he got a level of grit with him that if he need to take it there uh he can take it there um that's a bunch man though those are a few though so who i say i said manual chance salim ellis bay jamal harvey uh and jordan roach there's a bunch of other ones too man and yeah it's a bunch of other ones gotcha now, in the pro circuit, what up-and-coming fighters, like what prospects uh, do you like now that you see? Um, up-and-coming, obviously, got to say Keyshawn Davis. He's mm -hmm. going to be somebody that a lot of people know. 
and uh, he's gonna he he's gonna um kick a lot of ass and take a lot of names. Uh, his brother Kelvin Davis, who's improved a ton, it's like he's found his punch. So he's hurting guys a lot and knocking them out. Um, he's definitely somebody that they're gonna have to watch out for in that 140 pound division. He's a dog. Yeah, for sure, man. I've seen it. Yes. Um, I mean, Boots obviously he really hasn't got his chance. That's really that's really who I see coming up. There's a bunch of other young fighters out there, but they got to do a little bit more, fight somebody, and then I can kind of, you know, talk about them a little bit more. You know, they still developing, so they fighting kind of like guys, you know, that got probably probably got more losses than they have wins and stuff like that, or probably fighting guys that have much experience as them, so they really haven't came into the pro world for real yet. Well, Jalil, Jalil Hackett, man. Jalil Hackett is a person that you got to watch out for. Uh, Trayvon Marshall. Trayvon Marshall. Have you watched him? No, I haven't. Yeah, Trayvon Marshall, Jalil Hackett. Jalil Hackett signed the uh, TMT. And then uh, I don't know who uh, Trayvon Marshall signed to, but he fights on PBC and Fox a lot. Okay. So, I'll yeah. be on the lookout for those guys. Yeah. Vel, did you have any questions? Uh, yeah, I think you covered it a lot. Uh, that was some good questions that you had, Danny. Uh, Mustafa, you mentioned about the system of boxing as far as the amateur circuit and the uh, arena in which they perform. What do you think would be a good thing to improve upon the American system? Because um, boxing isn't like, let's say, basketball or football where you can just go to high school and just join it or whatever. You have to look for it. It has to be kind of in you, but you have to look for it. It's not always marketed correctly to the youngsters. And especially considering that youngsters, they have all this energy, especially teenagers, they like to, you know, wrestle and tussle, you know what I'm saying? And of course, if, if, you, if you're not going to wrestle, you might as well box. So, so what yeah. can be done to improve upon that, in your opinion? Um, Believe it or not, uh, as far as like boxer for boxer, pound for pound, like amateur wise, America is doing like really good. We don't get the credit that we deserve uh, because a lot of people, I don't know, a lot of people are like infatuated with just like, I guess, foreign countries and stuff like that. But like the boxers that America have been producing and the tournaments that they set up so these guys can consistently challenge themselves and and reach the level that they would like to reach. And, you know, on these amateur circuits, there's not a lot of countries that really can compare. What happens with America is that, one, we don't really get the support. Like, the Amer like amateur boxing doesn't get the full support from, I guess, our countrymen and women. Like, for, uh, for different reasons. I guess they don't feel like it's safe or whatever it may be, but we don't get the same support that basketball gets. We don't get the same support that amateur football get. We don't get the same support that amateur soccer get, baseball get. And there's always been this stigma that, you know, boxing is a poor man's sport. But no, it takes a lot of support and it takes a lot of money to really produce these young men and women into champions. It takes a lot of money and it takes a community support. But uh, we kind of get neglected on that end. And that's really what would need to happen is that the, community or the countrymen and women would need to support the sport a little bit more that's really what would happen because as far as the athletes we have them a lot of what happens when we get to the international level is that you fighting a guy like the cubans for say uh 
to speak on the Cubans. You're fighting a guy who's been fighting on the international circuit for four to five years before you ever gotten there. That's like asking a high, a high school graduate to compete against a, a college class of seniors, you know, when they first just graduated high school. So that's, you know, that's really what we run into a lot. But as far as like pound for pound, like we're doing extremely well. And, and honestly, if you look at the youth, the youth that we have, it, it, it speaks for itself. We, we perform really well. Like when the youth go international and stuff like that, they win a lot. And that's due to us having a good program and a good structure here in America. And then we kind of control boxing on the pro scene. So you also got a lot of these kids that come up in these gyms with these guys. They get they get access to these top professional boxers. They don't really, you know, they got professional boxers in other countries, but they don't get the same access that they get here. I think that's a perfect way to cap off the interview portion of that. So we're going to go into the Showtime card that happened on a Saturday. We're going to start with the main event. Now, Danny Garcia moved up to 154 to fight Jose Benavidez Jr. Lavelle, how did you see that? Yeah, I thought it was a a pretty good account for uh, Danny Garcia. It was interesting because I, I got off the couch to get some water and I came back. And I saw a dude in a mask coming to the ring. I'm like, okay, you know, Danny. It ended up being Jose Benavidez. So when I saw Danny Garcia, he walked to the ring without his trademark mask and stuff he usually, he usually wear. Uh, he did seem kind of, you know, j- a little nervous. You can tell some things was getting to him. Uh, I didn't even know that. I didn't even realize that he had been out of the ring that long. So uh, he had to shake off some ring rust. And you could tell the first couple of rounds – he, he seemed a little flat and he seemed a little slow to get in his rhythm um, because of that, that, that time he had spent off. Uh, Benavidez came in jabbing, you know, trying to outmuscle Danny Garcia because uh, Benavidez is pretty much the bigger man. Uh, but once Garcia start getting into this rhythm, going to the body, um, uh, he even jabbed a little bit. He, he was trying to land that, that trademark left hook. It's just that, Benavidez is so sturdy and so so big. The punches really wasn't hurting him like that, but it was some sting that that Benavidez wasn't just going to walk, you know, through with Danny Garcia's punches to brutalize him. Um, but one of the things that I thought worked against Benavidez is just standing there and trying to let Danny Garcia uh, punch him and saying, "Yeah, I can take your punches." And once Garcia started getting into his rhythm, um, he's not really known to for his his swift, he's, it's funny because he's called swift, but he doesn't have swift feet, but he does have, you know, basic footwork. He's He has good fundamentals. And once he started using his, his footwork to get out of the way of, of Benavidez's punches, I thought he would step on it and try to stop uh, Benavidez. But the, the good thing about Benavidez, he does have a strong chin. He seemed pretty sturdy outside the Terrence Crawford fight, which Crawford is just special. Uh, he hasn't really been taking some beanings, even though that leg still seems like it, you know, some issues there. But Garcia, he, he definitely got to to his rhythm. Uh, he cruised his way to a decision. Uh, I didn't like that scorecard at 114-114. I didn't think it was even a, a close fight like that. I don't know what that judge was fighting, but it was good to see Garcia, you know, in his element and having fun. You know, the second half of the fight, he was having fun, you know, making – Benavidez missed and even when Benavidez did connect you, you know Garcia is known for a sturdy chin he seemed to be you know all right taking the punches he looked good 
it's it just that moving forward, uh, he proved he improved his record to 37-3 with 21 knockouts, and Benavidez falls to 27-2-1 with 18 knockouts. Moving forward, I think it's interesting for Garcia because to me, even though Garcia is, you know, he's a thick guy, he, he's mention-wise, he's kind of small for 154, and he, he threw some names out there uh, that he, he may want to fight Keith Thurman at 154, which I think that's a, a, a you know pretty decent fight for him. And he also threw out Arislandi Lara, which at 155 catch weight, which I'm not sure that that's a great fight for Garcia, given how, you know, Arizona Lara fights. And there was someone there, you know, another 154-pounder, Tony Harrison, that was uh, also wanted to be in the Danny Garcia sweepstakes. I'm not sure I like that fight for Garcia neither because uh, Harrison, just dimension-wise, he's a, you know, six-foot-one. He has this really long reach. I think he's like 75, 76-inch wingspan. Even though Garcia is just so much, you know, skilled and he can do all these things. I'm not sure. I think this is just one of those weight classes to me personally. I'm not sure he belongs at, but he's sturdy enough and he's skilled enough that he can make some, some of these fights competitive and interesting. But I like what I saw. It, it was it was good to see him back in the fold and, and mentally all right. He talked about his issues with uh, anxiety and depression. And, you know, it's good to hear that from fighters today because it's a real thing and you know, in the past, people just stuffed their, their stuff down and, and they would self-destruct, you know, whether they turn to drinking and drugs and all that. And, you know, a lot of fighters would do that. Uh, and seeing him really get open about that and, and really trying to, to better himself in the sport and in his personal life, that was refreshing. But props to Danny Garcia. You know, I said last week that I thought Benavidez would come out aggressive and that would play into Garcia's counterpunching ability. But he didn't even do that. You know what I mean? Like, he was aggressive in spots. But in terms of, like, punches thrown per round, he wasn't throwing any more than 50. And, and I think one round, he only threw, like, 10 punches. And so, you know, in terms of the fight itself, he just didn't do enough, nor was he accurate enough. Now, uh, for the CompuBox numbers, Garcia landed 233 out of 746. Um, he actually landed a career high in body shots, which was 153. But Davidez landed 117 out of 600. Um, I thought that overall, you know, although Garcia looked small for the division, he did look refreshed and, you know, in a way. Now to touch on the post-fight interview a little bit, you know, you already alluded to the anxiety depression. And, you know, he said that the pressure of being a good fighter and a good dad, you know, it got the best of him. I'm personally happy to see that he's addressing it and addressed it, you know, then in particular. And I hope he's in a good place. You know, like it's all these pressures affect all of us. You know what I mean? And you never know it, especially from him. Because you look at his social media or whatever, you know, he's like making skits. He's joking. He's like in the gym dancing. So you just never know. And even his fans, you know, and in the media and podcasting space, you know, it's either our job or our hobby to critique these fighters every move, every round. You know, but I hope that from seeing... Garcia talk, you know, fans understand the collateral of that. You know what I mean? Like, I write government contracts, you know, for a living. And some days I don't get it, you know? Like, I might miss a clause that's supposed to go in the contract. I might not include the proper data. But I don't have to see people tweeting about me asking if I'm done as a contract specialist or if I'm falling off. You know what I mean? I don't have to see it in the news or anything. But so they just give me something to think about as a fan, you know, as I sit here every weekend and talk about the fights that I see. But 
Uh, going back to the fight, though, uh, he made it clear he loves the sport. You know, he said he's not Danny Garcia when he's not fighting. So I'm happy to see him back in the fold. Um, you you talked about who he called out. I would not be mad at the Thurman fight. I like that Thurman rematch better for him than the Lara fight for sure. Because they're both kind of in a weird spot in their respective divisions. I, I do think that Garcia is too small. I think that Thurman is in a spot where it's like, the buds and the arrows, they're not gonna want to see him at this point. And then, like, I don't know if you want to see like a boots or like a Virgil either, you know. So they're both kind of in a spot where it makes more sense for them to fight each other right now. If he doesn't fight someone like Thurman, I would like to see him fight someone like I don't want to see him go straight into like a Charlo or even, you know, even like a Fedora fight. Like those are terrible style matchups for him even from a size standpoint, but maybe someone like a Erickson Lubin might be a good spot or even like a Terrell Goucher. So uh, we'll see what he does, but I'm happy to see him back in the fold. And most importantly, you know, I'm happy to see him happy. Uh, you got anything, Mustafa? Absolutely. So there's a couple of things. Uh, number one, just talking about the performance last night, I thought it was a, a really, a really exciting fight. Danny's really always in a lot of exciting fights, but the two fights that are, that we really know about Benavidez, him versus Crawford and him versus Danny, they have been exciting fights. A lot of it is because of Benavidez's bravado. He allows himself to get hit. He likes to taunt in between the exchanges and stuff like that. So um, he's a really tough guy, really durable guy. He was really big last night as it compares to Danny. Um, so he was able to take a lot of those shots that we know Danny would be able to normally knock a lot of people out with. But so Danny did a lot of crafty things in that fight that I liked. And honestly, I I would go back and watch it and have my guys go back and watch it. I love how Danny wasn't just trying to hit hard all the time. He was just placing his punches at times. He would faint. He would walk up like he was going to do something, try to get Benavidez. And his defense wasn't bad either. So there was a lot of things I can give Danny credit for. And Benavidez, he put in, he brought he brought it last night, so he made it really uh, worked it for the people that came out and the people that watched it. So give them both their kudos. What I don't like is what Showtime was doing because I think that Benavidez won about three, at least three or four of the rounds. They had Danny winning like the first eight rounds in a row, and for them for like what's his name Steve Farhood, I think he. Uh, for him to do that, uh, it's kind of clear what they're doing. You know, Danny's one of their cash cows and stuff like that. He's one of those A-side fighters that they have, and he he's a draw for them. So, you know, whatever, they, whatever they're going to do to paint him in a positive light, I understand that. But uh, I, I kind of feel like that was kind of a disgrace, and it was really lazy on him to kind of do that. Um, because really, you know, what these people are doing, these commentators and these uh, people that have the position that's pretty much talking to the audience, they're, they're, they're creating a narrative that most of the time, most of the time, the audience tends to roll with. So I didn't think that that was fair to boxing, not necessarily to Benavidez, but I don't think that that's fair for them to do, for, for Steve Farhood to do some something like that. He should have paid a little bit more attention and he should have judged the rounds a little bit more evenly or, or or giving Benavidez more of a fair shake, you know, but he does a good job. So I don't want to just, you know, just, just crap all over him, but that's one of my biggest points. And I could appreciate Danny showing his humanity, you know, showing vulnerability, 
especially as a man and, you know, expressing, you know, some of the things that he had problems with when millions of people look up to him. So especially children look up to him. It's good for us to kind of get that side of the story as well. Everything is not peaches and cream. I could appreciate that. But what I don't like is that those things were kind of painted or they were used as a narrative to why as though he lost the fight with Earl Spence, which absolutely makes no sense at all because Earl Spence just had a life-threatening accident. He literally almost lost his life. You know what I mean? So, And he was dealing with COVID as well. And I'm pretty sure there was a bunch of regret that he had and a bunch of a bunch of depression that he had as well leading up into that fight you know so i don't really think that it was a becoming of a champion to or or ex champion or whatever to kind of excuse themselves in that way and it's likened unto where uh you know how you know Sean Porter had fought that good fight with against Terence Crawford and his father kind of like wiped all that away with his comments at the end when he said that he didn't prepare properly because he fought a hell of a fight. Danny fought a hell of a fight against against uh against Earl, but Earl was better. Earl was more prepared. And you just have to give him his credit for that because I never really heard that. You know, Earl was great. He did his thing. None of that. It was always just Danny was just dealing with his issue, you know, and I feel like, you know, he could have um, gave Earl some more respect. Yeah. Did you, you guys have anything else on that fight, though? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because you guys have mentioned some of the people that he had called out, which I think is kind of like kind of weird as well. Um, I don't I don't think that he should be fighting Keith Thurman. And uh, I don't think that he should be fighting Laura either. I think that he should be giving guys like Tony Harrison a chance. You came up into that weight class, that 154 weight class. I think you should be giving those guys the opportunity, the Brian Castaños, those type of guys, the opportunity, you know, I can give you credit for fighting Benavidez, even though technically he's from 147 as well. I could give you credit for fighting him because obviously he was so much more bigger than you last night. So I can give you the credit as you taking on a real 154 pound challenge. But there's a bunch of guys up there that I think that deserves that opportunity at Danny Garcia because in today's boxing, we know that you don't just you know, you're not just making money off of fighting a so-called champion. But as we mentioned earlier, Danny Garcia is one of those A-side uh, draws, cash cows in the sport. So that's why Tony Harrison was pushing so hard to get that fight because, hey, man, you up here, you got to give us an opportunity. You up here, you know, because we're exciting. You got to give us our credit. You're up here because there's other exciting fights. And if that's not the mindset of Danny Garcia, he shouldn't be fighting. If you're not up there at the 154 uh, weight division to either fight for championships or other exciting to make other exciting fights, you need to go ahead and retire because that's not fair to those other guys because they got that that weight class popping. They got to jump in. They've made it exciting where they lost and fought each other, knocked each other out, and all. Even if he was to fight an Erickson Lubin or something like that, even with you know. But I don't know if he really wants those type of fights because he didn't really mention any of those type of guys. So that's my piece on on that. Yeah, yeah, you're correct. For Tony Harrison, you're right in that regard. I think, and also I think that Tony Harrison, that's a winnable fight for him against Danny Garcia because of styles and the way Harrison fights. 
and the size and length and all that stuff. For Danny, I think a winnable fight for Danny is, to me, out of 154, would probably be Tim Zhu uh, because there's a lot of stuff he can exploit, the mistakes that Tim Zhu made, and, and he's not as developed yet to this peak or else if he's ever going to be there. But I think Danny is just in a weird spot where I'm not sure if he's as big as a cash cow you're looting. Maybe he is. But giving those guys a shot, I think it's just, for him, it's just murder. I don't think he can beat those guys. And not and to they, cut you off, Lavelle. Yeah, yeah. Talking about him being a cash cow, let's just ask this question, right? Who else, other than the guys that Tony Harrison has already fought, would allow him to make more money than Danny Garcia? You're right. You're, even, you're right in that regard, yes. Even, even him fighting Tim Zhu, which is a much more dangerous opponent, he's not going to make more money. And it would throw him right back into, to, into the contention of the belts because if he beats Tim Zhu, then obviously he's the number two because Tim Zhu's the guy that they're pushing to fight Charlo. So the thing is, is even with him fighting Tim Zhu, who's the obvious number two in the weight class right now, he would make more money fighting Danny Garcia. Because there's many ways to skin a cat, right? How you talk mm -hmm. about, you know, he's in a weird spot. And that's what a lot of these guys are oddly trying to do. They're trying to figure out where they fit in at. No, we're going to ask this question. Do you want to fight for championships? Or do you at least want to make exciting fights? And if that's the case, and I'm talking about specifically at 154, don't be talking about guys that aren't at 154. You don't do that. Don't talk about Keith Thurman. And don't talk about Laura because Laura's really, Laura's really wild. Yeah, he's middleweight. <laughs> and on top of that, he fights at middleweight. If you have one name, who you would put him against next? Who who would you put him against? I mean, I wouldn't say one name. You know, I don't think Tony Harrison necessarily deserves more so than other guys. You know, I would like to see a Tony Harrison fight. I would like to see a Terrell Gachet fight. I would like to see a Tim Zhu fight. I would like to see a, a Lubin fight. I would like to see a um, Fandora fight. I would like to see a... Um, Castaño. Yeah, Brian Castaño. I mentioned him earlier. Shoot. Even if he fought Hurd. Like, like you got these guys who's been champions. You know, He's not going to fight J-Rock. He's not going to fight J-Rock with them both being from Philly. He's not going to fight him. So I would like them to see them type of fights because you're not going to just fight Charlo right now. And I know you're giving Tony Harrison a lot of credit. I love his boxing style and I love his jab, but it stands to be answered who would win that fight versus him and Danny. That's not a, just an all-out easy fight for him because he has problems when he gets hit and Danny can hit. So the thing is, is that's, those are the type of fights that Danny should be trying to go after. And if he's not, you should stay at 147 because you could have fought Keith Thurman easily at 147. And you could have asked for a catchweight to fight, whatchamacallit, at 155. Still. You guys have anything else on this fight? No, sir. So also on uh, the undercard of the, the main event, uh, we had it, some heavyweight action with uh, Adam uh, Kanowski. He made his return since his loss to Robert Helenas. And he was fighting Ali Irene Demarezin. So, uh, Danny, what were your thoughts on that fight? And what should Kanowski do after this this uh, fight they just had? I don't have a whole lot on this fight, but I will give Kanowski this. You know, he's coming off those two back-to-back -back losses to Hellenius. And one is he came in the lightest that he's come in after any of those fights. 
And also, he didn't seem to be affected physically by the fight. Like, he still seemed to be himself, although he got knocked out, you know, twice and suffered his two first career losses. So I'll give him that. You know, that said, you know, round one, he came out sort of being vintage, Klovnowski, uh, did some solid work to the body. And I, I gave him the first two rounds. But I feel like after that, he got kind of gassed towards the middle of the third round. And his style is basically like activity. Like he doesn't give you a whole lot of special effects. Like he has those kind of fights where this is not always the case, but he has those, he's the type of fighter where sometimes you can just watch the copy box numbers and kind of see, you know, who won that round. And that doesn't always tell the story, but he's that kind of fighter where sometimes it does. And he just never, to me, he never really got that pace back after the middle of that third round. And I, I thought that Demarazin kind of took over uh, after that. I did give Konoski the eighth, but otherwise I had it 97-93 in Demarazin's favor. They both, you kind of see what you get with them. I felt like Konoski, again, once he got tired and slowed his pace, there wasn't much else to offer. He he was kind of slow on his feet, didn't have a ton of head movement. Demarazin just took advantage of that slow pace. And after the first two rounds, he rallied back. Uh, he was the better man. He had the best stamina. And the stamina, to me, is what won him that fight, the stamina and activity. But Konoski had this in his favor. You know, one, I like that he's serious. Like, he showed that he's serious about boxing. You know what I mean? But his style is fan-friendly, and that home crowd loved him. And so, I mean, if you were to ask for, like, a better performance than this or more from him than a performance like that, I don't know how realistic it is, but his advantage is that he's going to be able to continue to put on performances like this because that's the type of fighter he is. But um, I thought that the better man won. I thought that the judges scored this accurately. According to the copy box, he landed 276 out of 851. Demarazin landed 256 out of 915. But Konoski's busiest rounds was in the first two rounds of that fight. Their combined thrown punches of 1,766 was the second most in CompuBox heavyweight history. So the action was definitely there. Um, but I thought it was a pretty straightforward fight just from watching it. Yeah, he he always gives performances like this. It was it was interesting that he did come in uh, lighter in his fight. And he kind of gassed early, but I think it had a lot to do with Demarazin putting up that resistance. It was interesting that these guys, both of them, they, they fight kind of similar they fight a lot uh i like you know they're both kind of and especially in this fight you know volume punchers sometimes it was like looking in the mirror it just said except that the marazin he seemed more uh he, he seemed more fresher and he was getting to the the target a lot better than uh, kanowski was kanowski did start off at first well he was he was jabbing he was going to the body he was doing these things and and, and as soon as that resistance start being put up by Demarazin, it, it seemed like he just start, you know, throwing caution to win, start fighting and, and throwing a lot of trying to to win off volume, which Demarazin was able to match, which made it a problem. And the thing with uh, Kanowski is is that he gets by on outworking guys and having that volume, but once fighters start putting up resistance and being able to bang with them, he starts to get in trouble and he starts taking more punches, and he doesn't have anything to you know to protect him from when that when that heat starts going up so you know he started looking at the you know his face during the fight he started getting discouraged and, and things of that nature but he never stops going 
and the, the the Marison was just just coming like a a bulldog pretty much the whole way through. So the Marison did earn that. He earned that win. I actually <laughs> watched this fight. I thought that that they were going to try to not say they were going to screw the Marison, but I thought those, those scorecards might have looked sketchy at the end, but they didn't. You know, the Marison he comfortably won his fight. I thought he did a good job. And once uh, Kanasi's head started you know, snapping back midway into the fight. I thought, I actually thought that Kanasi was going to get stopped, but, you know, he fought his way through. Uh, and it was an interesting fight. Good good performance by Demarison. Entertaining performance by Kanowski. I'm just not sure where he, he what he's going to do going forward. Uh, he is 33. I didn't realize he was that, that age. I thought he was actually younger. You know, interesting fight. It was entertaining. So my, my take on it is, one, Whenever you can get heavy guys that big to throw as many punches as they did, it's pretty uh, spectacular. But if guys are throwing that much, that means guys are getting hit a lot. Because boxers don't really like to throw and miss punches. So if you're throwing, if, if people are throwing a lot of punches, that means somebody's getting hit a lot. And it's really not good for either one of them. Because in the weight class that they're in, all they have to do is run into the right puncher. And that stands to be proven with Kanowski. The thing is this, they're great fighters to watch. You love to watch them, but you would hate to train them or you would hate to be their family or you would hate to be their friends because I really worry about Kanowski in old age because he takes so many punches. He takes a lot of punches. Although he throws a lot of punches, lands a lot of punches, he takes a lot of punches. And to be honest, if I was training him or managing him at this point, I would be really happy of what he has accomplished so far, virtually coming out of nowhere, nobody really knowing who he was. But I would really be pushing for him to stop boxing at this point because it's not really going to be good for him. He uh, he just get hit. He just gets hit too much, man. And Demi Risen either. Demi Risen is he is he's waiting for the right per- opponent, really. And they're just going to knock him out, too. So it's just going to happen. It's, in the, it's the inevitable for them. They both get hit too much. Yeah. So that first part of that televised card, we had Gary Antoine Russell. He fought Rancis Bartellamy. Val, what did you think of that one? Yeah, this was an entertaining fight. The Russell family, I, I like watching them. I think it was interesting. I, li- I think I like Gary Antoine Russell the most out of all of them. He came out aggressive. Bartellamy caught him with a right hand I think early in the fight it was the first round it looked almost like Russell was going to go down whether he was off balance or not but it was it, it was good to even see Gary Antoine Russell get some adversity you know because up to this point outside the Victor Postoff fight he's basically like a windmill he's heavy-handed and he, he's kind of a volume puncher and he used educated pressure uh, he always moving his head and moving and doing these things to, to get out of the way of, of certain punches but he's also you know, he can, he's vulnerable to get caught, too. And it was always that question of what was going to happen, you know, if he has to face adversity. And he was he was caught kind of early. And, you know, of course, the the, the announcer was making more of it than it probably was. But I, I like that he came back in a second, uh, started working that straight left a little bit more. And for telling me, he was all right during throughout this fight. I mean, he was doing OK. He wasn't doing bad because he was trying to keep up with 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 Russell and he was doing good in spots it's just that when he got caught with that right hand and that right hook in the uh, sixth round I think that 
Gary Russell was kind of robbed of a of a stoppage. I think it was worse for Gary Russell than it was for for telling me, because for telling me got up, got right back up. He was good to go, and the referee, you know, waved it off. We don't know how this fight would have went. I think Russell might have still won his fight by stoppage, but I think it would have fared well better for him. And I and yeah, of course, even I saw uh, Mr. Gary Russell, you know, saying is you know telling. Bartolome's corner is not, you know, his fault, and you know that they just got a messed up ref. I don't know what ref, referees see when when a guy's hurt like that. I I wasn't looking in Bartolome's eyes or anything like that. It just seems like he was okay. He he seemed to obey the instructions, and he he, he wanted to go out uh, on a shield, but of course, you know, you know, you don't want to see fighters get hurt neither. But Gary Russell, he did what he had to do. He improved to sixteen and zero, all uh, knockouts. It's, it's interesting to, to see going forward with him because especially in this fight, cause he seemed a little bit more vulnerable. And I know on the top level, once he get up there, he's going to get caught a little bit more and he'll, he'll probably be in more entertaining fights and have to, we'll, we'll, we'll see, you know, what he has deep, you know, deep down in his heart when he has to fight those fights out. And then, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of Gary Antoine Russell and I'll be happy to see what's going on. what's going to happen in the future with him. Yeah, I had Russell up three rounds and two at a time in the stoppage, but I give Bart telling me this. I felt like uh, he fed off of Russell's aggression some. Like, he came in, he looked good at 140. Um, I like that he fought like a savvy veteran. He knew Russell would come out aggressive, and so in some spots he would do this thing where he would kind of stay closer to him. And although he gave up his reach advantage in those moments, he forced Russell to kind of smother his punches and so his punches were less effective. And so he wouldn't throw as much in those spots. I don't know if Russell just didn't spar a lot of southpaws in this camp or what, but uh, I noticed that Bartellamy was a lot more successful too when he switched to southpaw. He rocked them more than a few times. I believe that combo you alluded to, Vel, in that first round, I think he he threw that out of southpaw and rocked them. But, you know, kudos to Russell for, you know, clinching and, surviving that round and going on to, you know, to fight some more. I do think he learned a lot from this fight. In the post-fight, he said that he didn't agree with the stoppage, he being Russell, but that the same result would have happened either way. I don't know if I agree with that, because although Bartelli was not down, he didn't seem to be hurt. He got up at the three count, and then he responded to everything the ref was telling him. So I don't know what the ref was thinking when he stopped that, but... You know, I do think that out of the six rounds, at least, Russell got some things he could take from the fight and learn from. In my opinion, this was the best fight of the night for as long as it lasted. I just hate that it ended the way that it did. Okay, so my thoughts on the fight is obviously a good fight got spoiled uh, due to the referee's decision. Just to piggyback off of what Lavelle was, you know, speaking on, like he's not sure what the referee is. So I'm actually an a, a amateur referee. And I know we try our best to protect the athlete. You know, they say they, they would rather stop the fight early than to stop it too late. And uh, what was happening was is that Bartholomew's chin was on full display. He was taking a lot of shots, a lot of big shots. And he was taking them all the way throughout the rounds, regardless if he was having success hitting Russell or not. Uh, the referee was paying a lot of attention to Bartholomew. And when he got knocked down, the referee probably really didn't want him to continue because he felt like it was 
inevitable for him to really get hurt more. Now, I feel like he should have gave him an opportunity because he robbed Bartholomew of a of a chance to bounce back. Uh, the fans from a you know to see what what may happen and what may not happen, but a lot of that has to do with Gary Russell being the A side as well. You know, unfortunately, in the pros, they do look at that type of stuff. You know, if it's like it's like pro basketball. You know, LeBron James gets the calls that a lot of other players don't get in a way. And unfortunately, a, a element of that does exist in pro boxing as well. So that's really what was going on. It's not Gary Russell's fault, really, you know, but I think he was going to finish him. I don't know how fast he was going to be, but it was kind of inevitable. He had four more rounds to kind of like destroy this guy. He wasn't, it was no signs of him really slowing down. So I liked it when he stayed clean with his jab a little bit more versus him, uh, going in, throwing all those heavy punches, because that's what got him hurt. But, I mean, overall, that was uh, a really exciting fight. Putting yourself in that referee's perspective, do you think that, because from what I saw, Bartellini was responsive. Like, he got, he got you know, rocked, but he was responsive to the ref's calls. Do you think that the ref was probably going to stop it regardless, based on what he had seen up to that point? So the thing is, is based off of that referee's, that official's, discretion and there's plenty of referees that would not have stopped that fight so you know it is what it is but there are plenty of people who would have and uh Bartholomew shouldn't have put himself in that position to get hurt as much as he did if he you know if he wanted to complain about anything so the accountability can go in many directions Bill you got anything else yeah the sad part about it yeah he Russell probably was going to finish him but because, you know, it went the way it was, it's like you can't get these type of results back. Uh, what I mean by that is, like, I remember watching uh, Jackson Marinez. I think that's the last name. It was either Marinez or Martinez in the fight with Raleigh Romero. And that's a fight that everybody knows he won. The general public knows he won. But he never he didn't get that decision. And moving forward, of course, he had some fights that he lost, at, you know, after that. But that was the win that he probably – just need to have it's like at the end of the day it's like you don't get the win that you probably really deserve and when by telling me i think the going back to the drum war yeah he probably was still got stopped but i think in his heart he probably that's not the way he wanted to get stopped he really wanted to get go out on his shield and and, and know the truth it's like the you know, of course the ring is a truth machine he just wants to know that truth so it's interesting and what I mean by why you can't rewrite the past is I'm not sure a rematch will fix the issue. You know, Russell could just stop him even harder in a, in a, in a rematch, and in, in, in that question about the first fight would still be there. But it was an entertaining fight, though. It was the best fight at that, at that night. So next week, August the 6th, we have a fight against one of the uh, up-and-coming talents at welterweight, Virgil Ortiz Jr. He'll be taking on Michael McKinson. Uh, what are y'all thoughts on this fight and, and who you see winning? My prediction is going to be similar to what it was going to be when they were going to fight back in, I think it was March. I think Virgil's going to stop him in probably about the fifth round. You know, I saw McKinson fight his replacement fighter after Virgil pulled out due to being sick. So McKinson fought 17-3 Alex Martin, and I just didn't see anything from him that would change my opinion of that. He still looks slick. You know, he's a slick fighter, and I see why they matched 
a, someone with his style against someone up and coming like Virgil. One, because Virgil can't get that big fight yet. And two, to show him as many styles as they can until he gets that big fight, you know. But I think that Virgil just got too much firepower. I think he's going to break McKinson down over time. And I don't think McKinson is slick enough or powerful enough to keep Virgil off him. So I think he's going to stop him in five. I, I watched McKinson. I watched a few highlights of him. I wasn't familiar with him until you guys asked me about him, to be honest. But um, he he's beat a couple of undefeated fighters on his on his record. I'm think I'm thinking Virgil Ortiz is going to stop him. Um, he should be stopping him. The way how he fights and the way how Virgil fights, he should stop this guy. But I give this guy because of his like you said his level of slickness or his level of craftiness. I'm gonna say he's gonna at least survive at least seven rounds. How many how many rounds are they fighting? Is it ten or twelve? Yeah, this is this is a twelve rounder. Okay. Yeah, I think he's he definitely has more than enough to do the job to stop him. He should be stopping him. I, I don't think that the guy's gonna try to make Virgil uncomfortable for real. I don't he's gonna he's not gonna press the action or anything like that. And I really feel like for you to beat Virgil, you have to be really strong. And I don't see this guy as the, that type of a fighter. Yeah, I agree with you, Mustafa. That I'm not sure if McKinson has anything that's going to give Ortiz anything to be worried about besides being slick. And even by being slick, I think it's just a matter of time before Ortiz catches up with him because with that slickness, McKinson doesn't have any type of firepower to really keep Ortiz off of him. Um, when, when I look at the things that Ortiz has had issues with or struggled with, you know, like in his last fight with Akowskis, Akowskis, uh Mean Machine. Uh, mean Machine is, is a big guy and also had the, the, the strength and power to, to, to catch Ortiz at spots and hurt him uh, pretty much, which, of course, Ortiz has that killer instinct and, is, and it was able to, you know, get him through that fight. Um, but with a McKinskin, if he doesn't have that sting on his punches to really get Ortiz respect, the only thing he really has is that, you know, is, is boxing ability, slickness, and the footwork that he does use to to keep Ortiz away from him. But I think it's only a matter of time. I think Ortiz is just too big, uh, too strong, and I think he's probably going to stop him probably in the, in the eighth round, something around that in, that, in that in that time frame. So as of now, the Jake Paul and the Hasin Rahman Jr. card has been completely canceled. So, you know, Amanda Serrano will not be fighting anymore either on next weekend. The way it's being reported is Rockman's camp asked for the weight to be raised to 215 pounds, and Jake Paul's camp refused that. What are you guys' thoughts on that in general, and who looks the worst coming out of this? Is it Jake Paul or is it Rockman Jr.? Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, a circus. Both probably look bad, but for different ways. But I think Jake Paul, I mean, it depends because it's, it's like to who? To boxing fans or to casual fans? To me, a boxing fan, Jake Paul probably looks the worst. To someone who's probably a casual fan, Robin may look like, oh, he's ducking or doing anything else. It was pretty obvious, even when I talked about this last week, that Robin was going to, there was a weight clause with this, and Robin was going to have problems getting down in weight. And that's probably what Jake Paul's team was, was counting on. But looking at this fight, after, if Robin was allowed to come in at 215, even at 205, I, I thought he was just it, just, it was just going to be too much for Jake Paul. Like, this was just bad for, to me, in my opinion. You know, Jake Paul, of course, he has these, 
these knockouts over Nate, Nate Robinson and, and uh, Tyron Woodley. Neither of these guys are, are none of those guys were trained boxers who've been doing this like at least 10 years. You know, Rahman comes from a, a family of boxers. You know, his father was a heavyweight champion at one point. Um, and I know that Paul's team was probably looking at that last fight that Rahman was in, like, oh, yeah, he got knocked out. I think I can knock him out too. But Rahman got knocked out against another trained boxer. And at some point, I think Jake Paul was going to top out. And, and I, I, I thought, I think that this was going to be that time he was going to top out. And I think he was looking for a chance. Like, if anything, they budge on anything, I'm getting out of this fight. Might have been that he saw Ramen in, in person, but that's just my, you know, my thoughts on it. Um, some people might say that, that Ramen was, you know, trying to get out of the fight also by having that weight clause. But I look at that Ramen was, was always going to be too heavy for this particular type of fight. Uh, and if he, if it was a possibility that he could get down, I thought he was going to wash Jake Paul and knock him out. That's just my opinion. I don't, I don't really like fights like this with Jake Paul and putting him in there with him. Or I, I'm just not into the the whole YouTube fights and all that thing. But hey, that's what it, it, it's about money. So hey, fair play to them. I, I hear that they're probably going to try to reschedule the fight so they can do it again. The sad part about it is that you know there were fights on the undercard like uh, Amanda Serrano's fight uh, that had to get canceled with it. Um, and that's the sad part that, you know, you have actual, you know, fighters who train for this. They, you know, they spent money and training camp and all that. And now this fight gets canceled because of the, a type of main event like this. And that's the sad part about it to me. So this is my opinion on it. Uh, uh, leading up to the fight, they both didn't seem confident for certain reasons. And obviously, the weight was the reason for uh, Rockman. And we see that now. And Jake Paul was probably because he was getting in there with a legitimate boxer. So they both didn't really seem confident for certain reasons and uh, kind of unfolded yesterday. The person that looks the worst, and really, to be honest, I don't think that Rockman really looks that worse because. You know, he walked away with a bunch of Instagram followers, more of a buzz for himself, um, just for being in talks about fighting Jake Paul. Um, but ultimately, Jake Paul is the one that comes out the worst on this because this is his business. Um, he's the number, he's the point guy on this. And it fell through on something that he was attempting to do, not once, but I believe this is like three times, three of his opponents fell through, right? Uh, meaning that Jake, if he uh, if he wants to fight a boxer, he has to go about his business a, a little better. Ultimately, it, it's going to hurt him because he's running off of a hype, and that hype train has to continue to run. If it gets halted for any reason, then you know you you get people that can start creating narratives like Dana White saying that he the reason why it really fell through is because he ain't selling enough tickets and all of this type of stuff, and that can kind of you know, it can kind of kill the buzz a little bit behind Jake Paul, and this could all be a thing of the past. But I respect Jake Paul, man, regardless of him being a YouTube boxer and all of that. Um, he didn't have to come in. To me, he didn't have to come in fighting real boxers, any of, any of that type of thing. He was putting asses in seats. He was a draw. People wanted to see him fight, and he fought people who would give him the experience he needed while he could he can continue to develop in the shadows. Um, until he could really fight a real boxer because he had no amateur experience at all. So, you know, 
people wanted to see him fight and he allowed them to see him fight, but you know, it was calculated. You know, he fought people who weren't really boxers. And uh and I think he had the right to do that to get the level of experience before he actually took on a real boxer. I didn't think it made sense at the time. But he has to continue to hype train. He has to. If the train doesn't continue, ultimately Jake Paul's gonna be a thing of the past and he'll be back on YouTube, I guess. Yeah, I agree with both of you for various reasons. I agree with you, Mustafa, because that's the tricky thing. That's a slippery slope with these fights that are kind of like hybrid entertainment, but boxing fights, because when opponents pull out, there's there's nothing else for them. You know, there, there's no really there's no real plan B. Like, for example, we just talked about Virgil and McKinson. Virgil got sick. And so uh, Virgil had to pull out back in March. McKinson had a replacement. You know, he was still able to fight. Well, let me, I, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but in, in uh, Hasim Rotman's uh, uh, Instagram live or Instagram post, he actually spoke on how Muslim Kaysen was the replacement. So if he wanted to continue with an actual boxer, he could have continued with Muslim Kaysen, who's actually at the weight that he was at, but then Jake Paul would not have the advantage that he wanted with draining his opponent. But so the fight, it could have continued. I mean, so it could have continued, but then I hate I gotta play devil's advocate with this dude. But I know the business side, you know, like you said, it's calculated, right? And so you don't have he could have, but then that fighter doesn't have the name that Rockman Jr. has. And then if it's true that he wasn't selling tickets, that problem is not going to help, you know, if he's fighting this guy. You know, they've already done a promo. They've already done at least one all-access with Rockman Jr. and Jake Paul. And so from a business standpoint, I don't know if that would have lined up. But I do think that if he really, really wanted to just go after this to get credibility, you know, um, he could have done that, which is reinforcing your point, Vel, on why you said he looks the worst with the boxing fans. Because the boxing fans are kind of like, for what I've been seeing the post on it, it's like you knew what you were getting when you asked the bridge weight to come down to 200 anyway. Casual fans are saying, oh, he could have lost 15 pounds in a week like they've ever had to cut weight before. That's whatever. But I, I, I agree with both of you, you know, for those reasons. Did you guys have anything else on that? If Jake Paul wanted to fight Hassan, not not saying he don't want to fight him at all or anything like that, but if he really wanted this fight to go through, he could have took this fight at 215. Wouldn't be healthy, but, I mean, if he really wanted to fight, we've had these things happen before where fighters couldn't make weight, and they say, okay, all right, you want to come in at 152 even though we at 147? Yeah, all right, you know? It's not always smart, but... It happens. <laughs> I'm not mad at him for not taking that one though, because we talking you know, <laughs> yeah. weight class is a weight class for a reason. So we talking he and Willie too, he came in at 191. So we're talking on average like 190 to 195, he's coming in, and then he would be giving up 20 pounds off the weigh-in to, to rock my dreams. I'm not mad at him for not taking that. I mean, I'm not <laughs> mad at him. It, it's just that I, I in the beginning, I mean you slay, he picked somebody with like what, what? It was like a month or two notice. Yeah. Who who fought what? It's high. The highest Robin fought is like what two seventy or something like that. He he's a muscle guy. He probably walks around 
probably like he's about 240 to you know 245 or something like that so it's obvious he was going to have to lose weight so i guess they were banking on his ramen's desire to get down to that weight desire is one thing body is another i mean I, uh, yeah exactly i mean they were counting on either ramen come showing to that ring weight drain and having to have fluids attached to him and stuff like that Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it has happened. Like, well, apparently, they say when Dylan Hoya waiting against Pacquiao, they put fluids on him and stuff like that, put an IV on him. They were counting on that or counting on this situation where this fight can't happen because he can't get down the weight. If they if they really wanted to get in the ring with Hasin Rahman Jr., they would say, okay, 215 or 210. Let's do that 210. Yeah. I, I do agree that if he really wanted to just do this, he could have fought the spot replacement. But I think that he does come out looking worse because you could chalk, like, you look at this objectively, you can chalk up Rotman Jr. to, like, maybe he made a bad business decision. Maybe he did think that he could have got down to that weight, and he didn't. Like, that's one thing. Paul loses hype. He loses credibility. And his business was promoting this. Yeah. yeah. So MVP, his, his promotional company, loses out. And the MVP fighters, like, like you said, Serrano. And so if I'm Serrano, I'm like, yeah, I'm I ate good off of like these few fights here, but if I want my name attached to his fights and he keep losing fights and the fight get canceled, how much am I really winning here? This also goes to my question I want to ask you, fellas. Who do you think Jake Paul is gonna fight next? What do you, what do you think is gonna happen next? Um, I have no clue, man. <laughs> I, I have no clue. But I'm interested to see what happens. If he fights a real boxer, I'll watch for, for whatever it's worth. If he if he's trying to get some type of advantage on some more experienced boxer because they're already going to have the advantage of their experience, I, I think it's fair. He's going to he's gonna pay them a lot of money. It's probably going to be the most money that they ever gotten. So it's a lot of uh, balances, pl- uh, negatives and positives, and you got to take them how you, you know, you take it how it comes. You got to take the good with the bad in this situation. And if I was Hasim Rotman, I would have tried my damnness to try to get to that weight um, because if I would have made it to that weight and I would have made it to fight night, I, I you know, I, I would have made a lot of money for myself. Probably would have got a, uh, you know, who knows what his business you know, because you're, you're you're a talent, you know, in your business. So, what what he what it would have done for him moving forward? So, it would have been great for him moving forward. Maybe he could have taken a break from fighting real boxers and started fighting more entertainers. Who knows? Like, who knows? I don't know. And fighting more exhibitions type of things, I should say, and still making a a, a shit ton more than what he was making before. So, I'm gonna give Jake some, you know. I'm gonna give him some slack. I'm gonna cut him some slack, but I think ultimately him as the the businessman, it looks worse on his part because his business lost a lot of money. Yeah, I'm calling it right now. Jake Paul is gonna he's gonna try to get a fight with Conor McGregor. I'm calling it right now. Okay, yeah, that'd be he gonna a good. You gonna try for that? You gonna go for that that gusto money? Yeah, I that'd think. Be a good one. Yeah, he can't go back. You know, in terms of like. If you fight someone like a McGregor, that's one thing because McGregor just so established at this point, but he can't go back regardless of what he does, you know? And when I say go back, I mean you try to fight several actual fighters and it hasn't worked. So you can't go back to fighting MMA fighters who are going to take a camp to learn how to strictly box. Like you can't go back to that. I think he can. I think he can. 
And it's uh-huh. why. And it's because he's he's a. I mean, to us, he can't. You know, to us who follow this sport, he really can't. The average person, the average casual fan, just want to tune in to Jake Paul and see who he's going to knock out. He can, he can fight whoever he want. He can fight that KSI, KSI uh, guy that he, he, I think he started his career with, and they will pay to see him. <laughs> he can fight Silver, though. He can fight Anderson Silver. Yeah, I will be. Silver's, Silver's had a few fights under his belt since transitioning, so I, that, that will be a fight I will be here for. That would be a good one. That would be a good one. Uh, it's a it's a bunch of people that he could fight to be exciting because of the character that he is. So, yeah. um, And I and I, like I said, I respect this, what he has built because – you know, you know, a lot of people just, you know, just gets on him for the shit that he talks and stuff like that. But it's OK. You know, you got to you got to do some type of promoting. I like when Floyd did it. You know, I didn't you know, I think <laughs> it is what it is. you can't take can't put too much into that type of stuff. Obviously, you don't want to be that type of a person. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to raise no young kids to be like that. But at the same time, you know, it's a part of our sport and it's entertainment, too. Entertainment, so you're right. To to Jake Paul's credit, this is a is a, just some regular guy who gets in the ring, and, and of course, there is it takes a, a type of mentality to get in the ring and get hit in your face. So for that, he de- he definitely deserve respect for that. You know, what I'm saying regardless of how you know anyone feels about his opponents or him or whatever, he gets in that ring, and up to this point, he's been producing. You know, so he been you know successful with what he does. So yeah, yeah. Bill, you have anything? No, I just you know shout out to Mustafa. And, you know, and I want to say shout out to uh, you know my parents. Uh, you know they they never say I should, they say I never shout them out. So shout out to my pops who got me on boxing. You know Andrew OG Jackson and, and my mom uh, Cynthia Jackson. You know so and Andrew shout out to my Jackson. sister. I mean, um, yeah, Andrew Jackson. <laughs> that's, a, that's a popular name. I'm about to say, I know him from. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He, he always joking that he's on. Uh, he, he's on some some bills. Uh, shout yeah. out to my my sister Chanel too, who always stay up and, and and promote the brand. You know, she be listening to us, laughing at our singing and all that. The money, you know. So shout out to those people. That's what's up, Mustafa. Anything you want to say or promote or plug to close? Uh, well, I just would like to say uh, thank you guys for having me. Uh, if you looking to follow me, you can catch me on Instagram at Coach Mustafa underscore underscore. Um, that's pretty much it. Um, thank you. For sure. We appreciate you. It won't be the last time, but you okay. know, your perspective was appreciated. Your insight was appreciated. And hey, best of luck in your in your endeavors, man, as a coach, as a man. Everything, man. I, we appreciate you for real. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I like to say this as well. So we're actually doing a fundraiser right now because I spoke on it earlier where we talk about we need the we need the community support to actually raise these young men and women into champions. Uh raising champions is not cheap. Boxing is not a poor man's sport at all, and we need as much support from the community as much as possible. And right now we have a fundraising opportunity or advertisement opportunity for businesses like yourself, where we're just asking the business to uh, to donate at least $50 and to email their logo, and it would go on our team shirt, and then we're going to sell those team shirts as well. So uh, $50 would go a long way. Gets a kid from state to state or to the other side of the country, you know, and, you know, traveling expands the brain, uh, makes them more mature, and, 
you know, the whole nine. So we, uh, if you guys are interested in doing something like that or can disseminate a message like that to any of your, your supporters, you know, again, you can get me uh, at Coach Mustafa underscore underscore on Instagram. For sure. Are you on Twitter as well or just uh, Instagram? Okay. No. What it's, I'll do is I'll, I'll plug it on our Twitter and I'll plug it on our Instagram for sure. But I'm verbally commit that my brand will be will be contributing to the cause. You know what I mean? So okay. I'll be in touch with you for that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Support yeah. Support and we'll put it, we'll get the word out there for sure. Yeah, All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause we we got we got we got you know, we gotta walk it like we talk it. You know what I'm saying? You know, Absolutely. we talk about it, but we gotta walk it for the for you know, for the youth, for the future. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Got to. And I, I think that's a good note to close it out on. I think that everyone said what they had to say. Uh, of course, you can follow us at Last Ones at the Bar on Instagram. On Twitter, is Last Ones at the Bar, but it's only one T uh, between at and the. But other than that, that's all we got. Thank you guys for listening, and we out. Peace. Peace. Peace.